So when I was in college, the movie 127 Hours came out. If you've seen that movie, 127 Hours, nobody? Come on. Okay, a few of you. You're like, what is this? Well, let me tell you about it, okay? Uh, 127 Hours is the true story of a guy who went hiking and rock climbing one day, and uh, as he was kind of going down like in a crevice between these two cliffs, uh, he put his hand on this boulder. The boulder slipped. He fell down. It crushed his right arm. And he was stuck there for 127 hours. And so the movie is a, is a true life account. I was watching some interviews about the guy who actually happened to him in the early 2000s. Uh, some of the things that he said about this uh, event were interesting. He said that he always told people whenever he was going for a hike or for a climb, uh, but for this particular day, it was supposed to be pretty, pretty basic, especially for someone of his skill level. And so he didn't tell anybody. So nobody knew that he was stuck. Uh, he would always climb and he always had like a little camcorder video camera with him. And so as he's stuck there with the boulder stuck against his arm, he sets the camcorder on the boulder and uh, sends, uh, records farewell messages to his family uh, and his friends. He has this little pocket knife and so he scratches his epitaph like into the rocks in case somebody were to find him. Um, he went to sleep on the fourth night, he said, assuming he was going to die. He had a little bit of water with him, but he was severely dehydrated at this point. And so he's kind of going in and out of consciousness, but he wakes up uh, on the fifth day on the morning and he realizes if he breaks his arm, then he can take the pocket knife and cut his arm off. Now he says in the interview, he knew from the beginning he would have to break his arm, uh, but, or sorry, he knew from the beginning he'd have to cut his arm off, but he had this like little sharp pocket knife thing. He's like, there's no way that I'll be cut through the bone. And so there's the climatic scene in the movie where he breaks his arm, gets out his pocket knife and starts to cut. Now, you know me, I ain't got time for that, right? I'm like, I can't see. Like, if your kid has a loose tooth and he like, nope, don't want to see it. Um, I have never clipped. I mean, this is like, not, this is not me being like a lazy dad. This is, I can't do it. I have never clipped either of my children's fingernails. I just can't do it. I don't know why, but I cannot do it. And so uh, we were, I was in college. There was a bunch of us watching it at our apartment. And uh, we're watching this movie. He gets out the scene. And of course, I'm like, well, I have to watch it but I can't watch it. And so like I get out of the living room, I like run into the kitchen, I have both hands over my face and there's like a little crack between my fingers and I'm like trying to watch this scene, but I can't watch it, but I have to watch it. And then he gets to the nerve ending part and like the whole thing, oh, you can YouTube it. Just YouTube the clip, 127 hours if you want to. Uh, it's gross, right? But what happens? He cuts off his arm. He's finished, he has to still finish climbing down the rock. And so he gets out. Uh, they found out that he actually lost about 40 pounds of water weight in just four to five days. Uh, he, he's, he's walking down this path and he runs into this family that is hiking from the Netherlands. It's a husband and a wife and a little kid. Um, and they see this man. I mean, if you thought the zombie apocalypse was a thing, like that's it. He's like, this is like blood, just like, you know, and he's like, Ugh. right. And what's the first thing he says to them, right? He needs a lot of things. He needs help. Uh, he needs a doctor. Uh, he needs food. But the very first thing he says to them is water. Like more than anything else, what he needed in that moment, although he needed a lot of help, the biggest thing that he needed was water because he was about to die of thirst. Now, it's interesting, in the book of Psalm, chapter 42, there's this well-known psalm that you may be familiar with. I just want to read it to you. Here's what the first two verses says. It says, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? 
Now, if you hear this psalm or you read this psalm, it kind of you, you you kind of assume it's like this like cute little deer that's like prancing through the meadow, and it's like, oh, I'm thirsty. Let me find some water. And, and you're like, oh, that's so cute. That's so fun. Uh, that's not the depiction that the in the Hebrew that we see here. The depiction we see here is a is a deer that is desperate for water, just like this man that had to cut his own arm off. He needed water more than anything else. And so it is, what this psalm is talking about, what we see throughout Scripture and what we'll see today, is that our greatest need is actually God's presence. Like, we need a lot of things, but as people created in the image of God, uh, more than anything else, we need God's presence in our life. It changes everything, and as today, as we continue through the book of Exodus, we're going to see Israel is going to receive instructions about what they can do to actually have God's presence dwell with them. And so if you have a Bible, we'll be in Exodus chapter 25. Uh, if not, there's a black one somewhere around you. You can read along with us in there if you would like. Uh, the background of where we've been, you know, the, the uh, Exodus is the story of God rescuing the Israelites out of bondage and slavery. And so we've seen a lot of miraculous things. Uh, we see the Israelites are going through the wilderness, through the desert. They uh, end up at Mount Sinai and they're trying to figure it out how to live as a free people. And so Moses appoints judges to help him rule in civil cases, and then God gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments, and then last week we saw God give Moses an additional about 50-ish laws about how they could love each other and treat each other with respect and kindness. Now, here's the good news. If you've been following Jesus forever, or if this is your first day ever setting foot in a church for all on an equal playing field, because this is, again, where the Bible reading plans start to fall apart, because it's confusing, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so last week we looked at, and I don't normally do this, but I know there's a lot of questions, and so if you missed last week and you're confused about some of the Old Testament laws, I would recommend you go back and listen to it. We talked about uh, particularly uh, buying Hebrew slaves and fathers selling daughters and what we're supposed to do with that. Uh, and now we're going to receive the instructions for the tabernacle, right? The, essentially the large tent that Israel is going to build in order for God's presence to dwell with them. And so in Exodus chapter 25, uh, this is coming off of 24, obviously, but at the end of 24, it says Moses is going back up to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And part of that is to receive instructions. In particular, we're going to see the next two weeks, the tabernacle, and then also the consecration of the priest and what they had to do to actually enter into God's presence. So I get it. There's a lot of confusion here. It might not always sound very interesting, but actually I think, and maybe it's because I'm a pastor and I have to say this, it's actually pretty cool what we're going to find. And so Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. You are to take my offering from everyone who is willing to give. This is the offering you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen and goat hair, ram skins dyed red and fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrance, incense, and onyx, along with other gemstones for mounting on the ephod and breastpiece. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of that of the tabernacle, as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. And so what we see here is that this is quite an extensive list. Again, remember, the Israelites are kind of are traveling nomadic people at this point uh, through the wilderness. And so the question is, where do they get all of these materials? Well, if you remember when they left Egypt, things were so bad. God had moved so uh, powerfully that the Egyptians were just like, get out of here. We'll give you whatever you need, whatever you want, just leave. And so they're going to take many of these fine and precious jewels that they got from the, uh, from the Egyptians to build this tabernacle. 
Now, it's interesting, verse 2 shows us that this is not, just like the laws, something they better do or else. It tells us that they do this if they actually want God's presence. Here's what it says in verse 2 again. It says, tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. You are to take my offering from everyone who is willing to give. In other words, God is not saying that you have to do this, nor is it really that God needs these things. Right? He doesn't need a tabernacle, but he's inviting them that if they want to experience his presence, to take what they consider valuable, what we consider valuable, uh, give generously. And if you want to experience my presence, if you want me to be with you, here is what it will look like. And so again, in verse 8, this is why they're going to do so. Verse 8, it says, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. In other words, God will not do this unless he's invited. He's not saying you have to do this. He's not saying you better do this or else. He's saying, if you want my presence, then this is something that you can do to make that happen. Again, it's not something that he needs, but he's inviting for them to make a home for him that they would then locate all of their tents and all of their camp around. This would be the center of the Israelites. In other words, what we see happening here is that God's presence is an invitation, not an obligation. Just like following the law, experiencing God's presence in our life is an invitation, not an obligation. Is that if you want God's presence, if you want to experience His grace and His mercy, He is inviting you to do so. Now, again, like last week, we look at the laws and we can think just like this, that it's a requirement, right? They have to build the, t- the tabernacle a certain way and do certain things or else, you know, they're going to be punished. But that's not what's happening here. It's that in reality, it's an invitation. If you want me to be with you, this is what it will look like. Now, again, if without that understanding, again, and forgetting that God had redeemed them first, it might seem like an obligation. But in their situation, after they have seen God move so powerfully, they would, of course, be like, we'll do whatever it takes because we want more of this God. In some ways, it reminds me about when I was growing up, and I've shared this before, um, I didn't get straight A's growing up. And maybe it's because I'm like a prideful, arrogant little kid, but I was always like, you know, I'm not the, the smartest person, but I'm also not dumb. And I had some friends that got straight A's, and I was like, I really don't think you're that smarter than me. Maybe you just work harder. I don't know. And so I never got straight A's until my junior year of college. What happened my junior year of college is I was taking, I was taking all, only the classes in my major, which was philosophy and religion. The semester ends. I get the little report card thing, or I go online, and I was like, I got straight A's. That's kind of cool. What happened was I was actually interested in what I was doing. I actually did all of the reading. I actually wanted to write the papers because it helped me learn what I was reading. I was interested in it. And so I got straight A's. And then when I went and got my uh, master's degree in religion, uh, I got two B pluses and everything else was A's. And the only reason I got B pluses, and it's not fair, is because the place, the school that I went to graded on a seven point scale. What is that? Thank you. What is that? Who does that? And so I got two B pluses because it should have been an A minus, but it didn't count. I got, so I got straight A's. Now why? This is not to say like this is impressive for me, right? But for me, I was so interested in it that I actually wanted to do the work. In fact, Christina jokes that after I turned in my last paper, I told her that I'm actually going to miss writing papers, right? And it's not because I necessarily write writing papers, but it's because like I liked to learn, right? And so there was for me, someone else might be like, oh, that sounds awful. But because I enjoyed it, I wanted to put the effort. But there are things that other people do, right? There are things in your life that you like to do, that you pursue, uh, that you work hard at, that other people would be like, why would you want to do that? But because you like the benefit of it, it's worth it. Like, so for example, now uh, I have come to learn, and some of you I know might find this hard to believe because I don't fully believe it. But one of the things that I find as an obligation is eating vegetables, 
Now, there are people, there are people who actually enjoy this. Can you believe that? Like, they actually like to eat things that are vegetables. And I'm like, who are you, right? Like, I will, I'm not, I'll do it if I have to, the minimum amount just to get by, but I'm not going to, like, go out of my way. Why would I do that, right? And so maybe I'm smarter, maybe I'm kind of smart, but I'm going to die when I'm 40 because I'm just like, I ain't going to eat that. Right? Because to me, I'm like, why would you do that? It's just not, it's gross. It's not, it doesn't taste good. I guess I'm not old enough yet to feel all the effects. And so I don't want to do that. And all that to say, here's what's happening here. Again, it can be easy for us to misconstrue the laws and the instructions to build a tabernacle because they're like, we see them as like obligations of things that you must do. But if you remember that they have been redeemed and loved by God, it's an invitation to experience more of who he is. And so that is what we're going to see here. And so I'm not going to read all of 25, 26, and 27. Um, and, but what I want to do is I want to show us uh, how significant and kind of what this looked like, what God asked them to build. And so in verses 10 through uh, 22, we get the first uh, piece of material that's going to be placed in the tabernacle. And this is called the Ark or the Ark of the Covenant. I'll just read verses 10 and 11. It says this. They are to make an ark of acacia wood, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold. Overlay it inside and out. Also make a gold molding all around it. And then there's a lot of other instructions about what it's supposed to look like. So again, this is very technical. That's why we kind of skim it. It's kind of confusing. Uh, In this translation, it actually gives us the inches, but other translations, it talks about cubits. And so that's kind of confusing. Uh, But a cubit is about 18 inches long. So again, this arc is only going to be 45 inches by 27 inches by 27 inches. So it's not big. Its impressiveness is not in how big it is, but actually what it looks like. And so again, because I know this is confusing, I brought pictures today, okay? And so instead, some of you are like, amen. Now, here's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, or a rough rendering of it. This is going to be placed in the Holy of Holies, which we'll see what that looks like in a second. Um, there are poles attached to it, because if you touch this Ark of the Covenant, you will die. In fact, there's a story later on uh, in, in the Old Testament when they were transporting this, because again, they had to move from place to place before they got to Jerusalem. With good intentions, somebody reached out and grabbed the Ark because it was falling, and he immediately died. This is how uh, powerful God's presence is. And so this is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what's significant about this Ark of the Covenant is two things. One in verse 16, which I'll read, it says this, put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the Ark. And so they were going to take the Ten Commandments that Moses is going to receive as he's on Mount Sinai. And it's actually going to go inside uh, this Ark of the Covenant. And then second reason why it's significant is in verse 21 and 22. It says, set the mercy seat on top of the Ark and put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. Then he then says, I will meet you, meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. The cherubim are those two kind of angel wing looking things. That's where God's presence will dwell. He says, I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. And so this is the Ark of the Covenant. It's going to go inside the tabernacle. Uh, in verse 23, we then see the table or the bread or the table of bread. Here's the next picture for you. This is also going to go in the, ta- uh, the table. And so there's specifications um, about what this table is supposed to look like. Again, it is made with pure gold, the finest of materials. Um, and, and there were always going to be 12 loaves of bread. And so there is 12 loaves of bread at all times on this table. They would have to uh, change out the bread from time to time so that it didn't 
didn't go stale or didn't go moldy. Uh, the 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, that, that are, you know, that's how the Israelites are divided up into the 12 tribes. And they're going to be placed in the tabernacle facing the golden lampstand, which basically means that they are always going to dwell in God's presence. And so from 23 to 30, we get the instructions for the table of bread. And then from 31 to the, lat, to the end of chapter 25, we get the instructions for the golden lampstand. Here's what the golden lampstand looks like. Uh, this, roughly something like this, this is what was also going to be placed in the tabernacle. Again, made with pure gold and a lot of spe uh, specific uh, instructions on how that is going to be built. Um, it is the second of three items in the holy place, which I'll show you in just a second. Again, uh, it was made of pure gold. It was supposed to be lit continuously, so there was always supposed to make sure uh, that the fire was burning on this lampstand. Again, it's facing the table of bread to show the Israelites that God's presence would be with them. And so these are some of the things in the tabernacle. And then in verse 26, or sorry, chapter 26 is all about the tabernacle. And so again, I won't read it to you. It's very technical. You can read it later on if you would like. Uh, but here is what the tabernacle looks like. Um, I'll explain it a little bit. It might, I know it's a little small, kind of hard to see. Uh, what you see here, you see the priest. He's in front of the entrance of the tabernacle. Um, in the first kind of sections, the first like two-thirds of it, this is called the holy place. In the holy place, you would have the table of bread, which is like on the top side, if you can see it. Uh, facing the table of bread, you have the golden lampstand. And then in front of that second curtain, you would have the altar of incense, which isn't talked about until chapter 30, so we won't talk about it this morning. Uh, but those three pieces are in the holy place. Now, the holy place where priests could dwell, again, we'll see later on the intense specifications and what they had to do just to enter the holy place. Um, and then behind the holy place where you see that second curtain or that second veil, that is what is known as the holy of holies. It is the holiest place. And this is where God's presence dwells. And so Moses was the only one for a while that could actually enter into the holy of holies. And then later on, you would have high priests that could enter into the holy holies after doing, again, a lot of intense things to make sure they are okay. In fact, uh, when they would enter into the holy of holies, they would actually tie a rope around the priest who would go in there in case he died in case he did something wrong. Uh, and, so, uh, and so the Holy of Holies, that is where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where God's presence dwelt. And that is where uh, Moses would meet with him, uh, meet with the Lord. Uh, later on, when the Israelites were actually in Jerusalem, they would build a temple and the temple would also be structured. It was bigger, but in the same kind of factions as this one. And so you have the tabernacle. Uh, and we'll talk about how that was built uh, later next week and kind of what it took for the priests to get in there. But this is the tabernacle and the instructions. Instead of reading them, I I'll just show you a picture. Uh, and then in chapter 27, it talks about the altar of burnt offering in the courtyard. And so we've got one more picture. Again, this one might be a little hard to see, but I'll kind of explain it to you. Uh, the inner rectangle, that is the tabernacle. So you, the first part of it is the holy place where you have the like small little rectangle. That's the table of bread. The small, the long thin one uh, is the uh, golden lampstand, and then you have the altar of incense in front of that wavy gold thing, which is the veil, which leads into the Holy of Holies, uh, and then you have the Ark of the Covenant. Um, outside around is the courtyard, and so that square when you first enter, that is where sacrifices would take place, where the priest would stand the entire day and just offer sacrifice after sacrifice. Uh, that circle in front of uh, the tabernacle is the basin where they would clean both uh, to clean themselves as, as ritually and for purification purposes uh, before they could go into uh, the tabernacle. That is what it looks like. It was roughly 75 or sorry, 100 feet long, I believe.
believe, and 75 feet wide of the whole courtyard. And so that's about half a football field for reference. Um, and that is what the courtyard looked like. That's what the tabernacle looked like. Um, and that is kind of all that went into uh, actually entering into the Lord's presence. Now, all that, all that's to say, this is pretty intense. Now, it might not have felt intense because we looked at pictures instead of actually read it. But if you try to read it, it's like down to the inch. It's very specific. It's very difficult. It's very intense. But just like the laws, uh, the instructions for the tabernacle say something about God. Right? It says something about God. We can skip it because it's confusing. It's kind of boring. We're not sure what to do with it. But it tells us something about God. So, for example, uh, if you were to walk into my house, for example, you would learn things about me just by walking around. Uh, you would see pictures of my family. So you would see that I'm married, that I have two kids. Uh, you, would, you could look at the books that I have and kind of make a, assumptions or guesses about what I like to read and what my job is because of the things that I have uh, in my house. You would see that my kids like mermaids and unicorns and uh, cars and dinosaurs, right? Because you can see the toys around the house. You could guess my socioeconomic status. Like a lot of things you can tell about a person by where they live. And the same is true of this tabernacle. It shows things, it shows us things like God's holiness. Now, holiness just means that God is set apart, right? He's using something that we consider valuable uh, to, to make his home. So not only is it different in terms of like the normal person did not live in a tabernacle like this. Uh, so we see that he's holy. Uh, we see that he's righteous. And we see that not just in how the, the tabernacle and the materials uh, that are used to build it, but also in what it took to actually enter into the tabernacle. That not any person could just kind of walk right in. And if you did, you would die. And so what you would have to do and how you would have to do it to enter the tabernacle, it shows us that God is righteous. There's something different about him. More than anything, it shows us that being in God's presence is significant. It's not to be downplayed. It's not to kind of be flippant about it. It matters to be in the presence of a righteous and holy God. If anything, what this shows us, what it shows the Israelites and what it shows us, because it's giving us a depiction of who God is, here's what this shows us, that we are completely unworthy of God's presence. We are unworthy of God's presence. God is using here what we consider valuable, and even then it's a concession, right? Even then it's like, God doesn't need this. We don't deserve it, but he's going to say, he's going to take what we think is valuable, what we think is important, and say, I'm going to dwell among you and in your presence, but, but you're not worthy of it. And so even though I'm gonna, you have to do these sacrifices and you have to do these purification rituals and all of these things, I'm still going to make a concession so that you can be with me. We are completely unworthy of God's presence. In fact, this is why in Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, the psalmist writes this. He says, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. What is a human being? Right? Who are we that God would care about you? Right? Who are you that God would be mindful of you? I'll tell you, you're a nobody. That felt good, didn't it, right? I'm a nobody. Like, we are not special. We are not significant. In fact, the only reason we can be special or we can be significant is if God says that we are. In other words, it's not about you and how hard you work and how awesome you are that makes you valuable. It's God himself who looks at you and says, you are my daughter, you are my son, you are made in my image. That is what makes you valuable. Not anything you can do. Right? The tabernacle shows us it is not about Israel. 
It is about God and what he has done so that we could be in his presence. It's kind of like, you know, when they invite people to throw out first pitches at baseball games, you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes it's like a a celebrity or maybe a local hero or someone who did something cool, and they invite them to throw out the first pitch at like a major league game or minor league game. And what, what typically happens when someone throws out the first pitch? It's, it's awful, right? It's bad. Like you can go like go on YouTube and watch. I mean, it is terrible. If they're lucky, they'll bounce and it'll still make it to the catcher. But most of the time it like goes, it goes like completely off to the side, right? The only first pitch that I've actually seen that it was actually a strike uh, was George Bush after 9-11 at Yankee Stadium, right? That will give you chills. That was cool. But other than that, I mean, it's just awful. Why? Because the people who are throwing out the first pitch actually have no, have, uh, have no um, really, they have no reason to be there. Right? They're not good enough. Right? They shouldn't be there. Right? But they've just been invited to take part in what's happening. But they're not trained. They're not skilled. They can't get the ball there. They shouldn't be there. But they have been invited to be there. And this is what's happening with the tabernacle. And here's what the psalmist is talking about. Right? It's not about us. It's about God inviting us into his presence. And so that being said, as interesting as the tabernacle might be, or if we're being honest, as uninteresting as it might be, um, I am under no false assumption that I'm delivering to you a riveting sermon this morning. Uh, What it does show us is that it is significant in some way, right? It matters that who God is and what the tabernacle has, the building of it says something about him. Now, that being said, uh, sometimes people wonder, as you read the Bible, what does it matter for us today? Right? Sometimes when we read scripture, it's like, okay, I learned things about God, but can I apply it today? Does it mean anything to, to me today? Uh, sometimes when you read scripture, the answer to that question is no. Right? You might be able to learn some things about God, but there's not always like a nugget that you can take away or a, a greater significance. But the good news is that's not today. That's not today. I'm not going to leave you like that. Uh, what we've said often throughout this series, and honestly should have been the tagline, is that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. It's a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so as you read the Old Testament, even just a few minutes of study begins to shed significant light on who Jesus is and what he has done. And in fact, understanding the tabernacle, and we could have gone a lot deeper into it, but even a surface level understanding of the tabernacle sheds significant light on the New Testament and Jesus and who he is. So for example, I'm going to read this for you. It's in Matthew chapter 27. It'll be on the screen. In verse 45, Jesus is on the cross and he's dying. And understanding the tabernacle and the holiness and the significance of it and the righteousness of it sheds something on this that we would miss if we didn't understand what was going on. Here's what it says in verse 45. It says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. So Jesus is dying. He is on the cross. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you Abandon me. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he is calling for Elijah. And so when he says Eli, uh, it means God. But some of the bystanders thought he was talking about Elijah the prophet, who uh, thought that Jesus was summoning his prophet uh, to come down. And so it says this in verse 48. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Now, we could go into this a lot more, but when Jesus says, why have you abandoned me? Or trans- other translations say, why have you forsaken me? What's happening there? What's happening is that from eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Trinity in one, Jesus has always been in the presence of the Father. 
And because of your sin and because of my sin, for the first time ever, Jesus is going to have the presence of God withdrawn from him. As horrific and as terrible and as gruesome and as, as the physical beating and the cross was, it was nothing compared to Jesus losing the presence of God. He felt forsaken. He felt abandoned in that moment. And so in verse 50, it says this, But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice gave, and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were, sit, were slit. So the, the curtain or the veil, he's talk, what's referencing here is the veil in Jerusalem, right? They had built a temple uh, bigger, but in the same kind of uh, dynamics or same kind of, uh, but just same specifications, but just larger in the temple of Jerusalem. The holies of holies, this is what it's referencing, was torn when Jesus was killed. Now at this point, it was, I think, 30 feet wide and 60 feet tall, so it was very significant, but it tore when Jesus died. Now here's why this matters. Because until Jesus, until this moment, only one high priest once a year, and you were never allowed to do it again, could enter into God's presence. In other words, until Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, pretty much no one ever got to experience the presence of God. You didn't get it. Nobody got it. There was something that you could do. You weren't righteous enough. You weren't holy enough. You could not enter the presence of God until what Jesus did for us, which is why in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, it'll be on the screen talking about what Jesus has done and the veil being torn because of the sacrifice of Christ. The author of Hebrews says this, says he, talking about Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves. In other words, from the sacrifices that the priest had to make, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So he, he enters in the Holy of Holies, not uh, based on anyone else's sacrifice, but by his own. And because of Jesus and what he has done, the author of Hebrews then says this in verse 24. It says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, talking about the tabernacle and the temple, which was only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. So because of what Christ has done, those who have accepted the invitation to follow him can now experience the presence of God, not because of you, but because of him. And so again, because of that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, it then says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, right? The boldness to enter God's presence. Before Jesus came, nobody would do that. If you had the boldness to enter God's presence, you would die. But because of Jesus, we now get to do that. Verse 20, he, Jesus, not you, not me, but Jesus has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That is through his flesh, that his body, his blood becomes the veil that we get to walk through. Again, not because of us, because of what he has done for us. And so verse 21 then says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that we no longer need high priest because Jesus has done it for us. Verse 22, let is draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith that you and I get to enter into the presence of God, not because of us, because of Jesus. Now, I know we got a lot of white people in here, but you can say amen to that. This is good. This is good that we have the full assurance of faith, that we don't have to be timid, that we don't have to have a rope tied around our waist saying, if I do this wrong, am I going to be killed? That God in his grace sent Jesus so that you and I could experience him. We have the full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure 
water. So the basin that was in front of the tabernacle, in front of the temple, is no longer needed because we have been washed by the blood of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the sacrifice that allows us to enter. Jesus is the high priest that allows us to enter. Jesus is the calves and the goats that allows us to enter, not you, not me. In other words, Jesus did what we could not do to give us what we could not earn. Jesus did it. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. Me trying really hard. You trying really hard didn't do it. You tithing or giving your money. You praying. uh, You not gossiping. You not being a bad person. You trying to be a good person. None of that allows you and I to experience the presence of God. Jesus does. Jesus is the good news for the hope of the world. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is holy. Jesus is just. Jesus is righteous. And it's his righteousness that cleanses us so that you and I can be with God. Now, all that to say, I understand that the the construction of the tabernacle uh, shows us how marvelous this is. The construction of the tabernacle may be boring to read, but the implication of seeing Jesus fulfill it is anything but. It's anything but, which again, the good news, the thing about scripture is you don't have to understand this. It is very clear who Jesus is and what he has done. But taking some time to read the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, sheds even more significance on what is happening here. Jesus did what you and I could not do to give us what we could not earn, which is God's presence, living water in our life. So the question is, how do, what then do we have to do? How do we respond to the invitation to experience God's presence in our life? Well, that's what we're going to do uh, right now. And so I'm going to invite the band back onto the stage, and we're going to have a time of confession. Now, confession is what we do here every Sunday at New City Church. It's a time where we go before God and simply be honest. I mean, the amazing thing about Jesus is that he doesn't, like, the under, uh, responding to the invitation of who Christ is, is simply us being honest about who we are, right? None of us are perfect. Even if you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing, whatever your standard of morality it is, you would even be, if you were honest, you would say, even this week, you have fallen short of your own standard of morality. Well, amplify that to a perfect and righteous and holy God. We have no, we have no business in being in his presence, experiencing his grace, or even expecting him to forgive us. But because of what he did by sending Jesus on our behalf, it shows us that he loves us, that he cares. And so every week at New City, we take just a minute to privately confess our sin before God. You don't need to stand up. You don't need to say anything to anybody else. But in this moment, we're going to be honest. We're going to ask God to forgive us for the things that we've done this past week, or maybe even the things that we have done unintentionally that we are not aware of. The ways that we've hurt people by accident, uh, the, the times that we've cut people off on traffic and didn't, under, didn't think we were doing anything wrong because we knew it was a mistake, but really, you know, probably wasn't the best thing that we, we did. We go before God and we, we simply be honest. We say, God, I, I don't have it all together. God, I've fallen short. And would you give me grace? And would you forgive me? And every time, even throughout the Old Testament, as we'll see in a few weeks here in Exodus, the Israelites are going to do something royally dumb. And all they have to do is repent. God doesn't say, repent, do X, Y, and Z, then you're forgiven. He said, a a true and contrite heart who actually is honest about their sins experiences the presence of God and the grace of God. And so we're going to take a minute and we're just going to pray. I'm just going to invite you to pray, to confess the areas in your life that you've fallen short. And maybe you're not sure about this Jesus thing. Maybe today is the day that you confess that, God, I have doubts and I have questions and I have a lot of things I'm not sure about. But I want your presence and I want your grace. So I'm going to invite you to pray for a minute, and then we're going to celebrate Jesus together. And so if you go before the Lord, confess your sins to him, and then we'll celebrate what Christ has done.